Well, welcome to Grafted Fall Series. We're glad to have you all back. It's good to be back. Yep. Uh, it's, it is good to see all of you gathered together. You remembered where we met. And uh, it's been a good summer, hasn't it? Yes, it has. And it is now officially over. Ah! That's why I'm wearing black, because summer's over. You're back in school. Back to work, back to the grind, back to, back to life. Back? I know. I, no did anybody take work, work off for the summer? Just Megan. Oh. Oh. Anybody as a teacher? Or you took work off? I'm thrilled for you. I wish I could have done that. Our staff was at our staff retreat last weekend, and we had a great time at a place called Lake Powell, uh, getting ready for fall classic. But we just had a, a great weekend away, building relationships, um, establishing some unity, getting the course set for the semester in terms of vision and praying for the ministry. And I got to tell you, it was a really good time away. And I wish I could go back to Lake Powell with or without those people, but especially with them because we had such a good time together. Uh, but if you're new with us, thank you for coming. Uh, welcome to my house and also to the place where our, our FBC college ministry meets. Thank you for coming. Glad that you chose to, chose to join us tonight. I know it can be awkward walking into a new place, but the good news is that you came on the first night, so it's just as awkward for everybody else as it is for you. And uh, so that you know, our goal in meeting is to help college students know Jesus Christ. It's the whole purpose of why we're together, helping college students know Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian who's looking for a group to belong to, or for fellowship, or for solid teaching, for a body of believers, then it's our hope that you would find a home here with us. Uh, we're a bunch of broken people mended together by the grace of God, and we can always use more in that process uh, of people looking to become more like Christ. If you're not a Christian and don't even really know what it means to be a Christian, or you kind of wandered in here because there's a lot of cars parked out there, and you're really here on behalf of my neighbors to tell me that there's too many people parked out in front. Uh, but if, you, if you're not a Christian and you don't really know what the Bible teaches or who God is, my hope is that you would come and listen to what the teaching of Scripture says about what the Bible, I mean, about what God says in His Word. We're gonna, we just open the Bible and teach right out of His book, verse by verse working through it to see who God is, what He expects of us, how we can know Him, even what our purpose is in this life. And so I don't know if you're dealing with some struggle or turmoil in relationships or depression, anxiety, guilt from your past, or if you're, maybe you're just curious about what it means to be a Christian and what the Bible teaches I'm just thrilled that you came and hope that you will listen tonight, even ask questions and come back to hear more in the weeks that come. But for all of you, thank you for coming back. It's good to be with you. Um, now to the task at hand. We start a new series tonight on the Gospel of John. We'll spend the remainder of the semester. So we've already done about 30 minutes of the semester. We'll spend the remainder of it now working through the Gospel of John. Now, as you know, John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Thrilling, isn't it? We call those first three the synoptic gospels because they are three versions of the life of Christ, all told from a very similar perspective. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're, they're all kind of similar in the way that they're laid out uh, with different purposes. I'll explain in a minute, but they are, they're different. They mirror each other, and they're similar in their presentation. But the Gospel of John is different. It is. It feels different. It's written differently with a different purpose. So Matthew wrote to reveal that Jesus is the king who came to his kingdom. Okay? Uh, Luke 
Matthew, Mark. Let's go Mark. Mark wrote, by, did you know that Mark was written first? I just learned that recently. John was written last. Uh, anyway, that doesn't really matter right now. Uh, Mark was written um, to say that Matthew, Mark, it's true, huh? Yeah. Mark was written to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised deliverer. Luke was written to show that Jesus is the Son of God or the servant of God who came to seek and save the lost. But like I said, John is different. And you got to remember before I tell you why John wrote that he is the brother of James, that he was a fisherman. He was called the son of thunder because one day when they were going through a town, they asked to stay, stay at somebody's house. The, the village people said, no, please go on. And he said, Lord, can we call down fire from heaven and just demolish this place? And so he's called the son of thunder. But at the end of his life, he becomes known as the apostle of love. He went from humble fisherman to one of the inner three of Christ's crack squad of 12 men. And arguably, he was Jesus' best friend on earth. He was there at the beginning. John 1 will show us that. He was there at the transfiguration. He was there at the cross, the only, only uh, disciple there. He was there at the resurrection. He never mentions himself by name in this book, but rather refers to himself as the one upon whom he laid his head on Jesus' chest. As if to say, yeah, that was me. But he never says, I'm John. He just says, I'm the one who, you know, I was close enough to Christ that I just could recline and put my head on his chest. It was to John that Jesus gave the care of his mother when he was dying on the cross. It was to John that Jesus appeared on the island of Patmos when John was exiled and imprisoned there to reveal to him and show him the revelation of the end times. And that's the book, the last book of the Bible. He also wrote three small epistles that are tucked into the back of your Bible. And so John is a very interesting character. We know a lot about him, don't we? And I won't tell you anything more about him except for the reason that he wrote the Gospel of John. So take your Bibles and go to John chapter 20, verse 31, because he gives us at the very end of his Gospel the reason why he wrote. And it is significant, and it, it will help us to understand the reason why he's writing. In John 20, verse 31, you're probably going to hear me refer to this verse every single message so that we understand and keep it in front of us. He says this, But these have been written. Uh, the reason that I wrote this Gospel is, is what he's saying. These things have been written so that you may believe. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's his purpose statement. That's his thesis. But when you write a paper, you're supposed to put the thesis at the beginning, right? John puts it at the end. That's okay. He has, as an eyewitness, shown us the Lord Jesus Christ, and now at the very end of his book, he calls us to believe, and that in believing, we can actually have eternal life. And so it's from this verse that we've derived our theme for the entire semester, and this is it. This is where we're going this semester. This is the whole point of what we're going to work through in the Gospel of John. This is the phrase, to know and to believe. To know and to believe. You'll hear this every week and hopefully you're going to remember it. And it's, this, this gospel is like a diamond that has many different facets that's cut very carefully. And every time we look at a different facet of the life of Christ or the teaching of Christ or something that he did, we see the brilliance of who Jesus is and get different perspectives on Jesus Christ himself. And in that we can seek to know him from many different angles, through many different stories and many different times of his life, to understand why he came, to see how he lived, to learn what his message entailed, to witness his death and his resurrection, and ultimately when all is said and done, to believe that he is the Son of God and that in believing 
we can have eternal life. This is not just a Bible story that we put on the shelf at the end and go, that was so fun listening to that story of Moses and the animals going on the ark, or did I say Moses? Of Noah and the animals going on the sea. I caught myself. That's a good sign still. This is not one of those stories that we just go, that's nice. This is a story that impacts and affects our lives going forward. Now, we can't go to every single verse or every single passage because we'll be here for a long time. We're only going to spend about 13, 14 weeks on this. And so we're going to kind of just take a, a skim off the top of a bunch of different sections of the Gospel of John. Okay? Now, as a preacher, I got to tell you, I get to choose what we teach, and I'm so excited. I'm so excited to preach the Gospels. You know why? Anybody want to guess? Because they're about Jesus Christ. That's, that's the reason why. And I find myself drawn to them, and I find myself, even when I'm teaching the epistles, the letters of Paul and others, I'm always thinking about how this is Christ. The whole Bible is about him, but these four stories are specific about his life. And they lay it out in such a clear way, and it's awesome. And no one as directly and as uniquely as John, in my opinion. So with that backdrop, let's dive in. Flip back to John chapter 1 and verse 1. This is called the prologue. It's the introduction. And I'm going to read and teach through 18 verses. I know, it's crazy. But we're going to give it a shot. We'll see how long it takes. I told you I wouldn't teach as long as I did in the relationship series, and I'm going to stick to that. So i got to be under an hour and 15 minutes. But, no, I'm just kidding. If you're new, don't freak out. That's not... Well, maybe you should be a little worried. Um, but we're going to work hard to stay on time. John 1, verse 1. Let me read the text with you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Wow. It's an amazing passage. I've titled our message tonight, Getting Jesus Right. Getting Jesus Right. And that's our theme for the evening. 
There is no greater person, no greater truth, no greater purpose than that which is found in Jesus Christ. And tonight, John, in this prologue, is going to show us Jesus Christ. In these 18 verses, he's going to lay out very theological truths of who Jesus is. And then he's going to spend the next 21 chapters giving the evidence behind the claim that he makes in these verses. Now, these verses are rich, they are deep, and there's a lot here. And preachers, you'll hear them often say things like, well, if we could spend months in this passage. And you're like, really? It's like three verses. I think we could get through this in about 25 minutes. I even think that as a preacher. But this is one of those passages, passages where you try to plumb the depths of this thing, and I've been studying it for a while, and it just keeps going down. This has an incredible depth, and I have not yet found bottom. These 18 verses have an infinite depth because they reveal the infinite God. And so admittedly, what we're going to do tonight is a flyby. I'm not even going to be able to touch every single verse. But this is a summary, I think, of the substance of what is here. And I'll do as much as I can to get through it quickly, but in a way that is helpful for you. Because back to the theme, getting Jesus right, it is essential. Not just for an intellectual ascent, not just for a mental understanding, not just so that you have the right answers, but getting Jesus right matters because it will determine your eternal destiny. Let me say that again. Getting Jesus right matters because it will determine your eternal destiny. It is of the utmost importance in your life. You cannot understand your purpose in life. You cannot know God. You cannot be forgiven of your sins or enter heaven without him. Now for you this morning, it, well, it's not a morning, is it? I don't even know what day of the week it is. For you right now, it might seem that your studies are of the utmost importance because school is cranked back up and you're already looking towards midterms and everything else and trying to figure that out. You might feel that now that you're back, at work, I'm not going to say it for, for Megan's sake, uh, but now that you're back at work, uh, work is the priority, right? It takes all your mental energy. I don't know, maybe the, your boyfriend or your girlfriend feels like the priority in your life. I, I don't know what those things are. And I would argue, yes, these things are very important in your life. But I would ask you tonight to put all those things aside and make sure that you individually, in your heart of hearts, are getting Jesus right. Because we'll see that he's not just a good teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He wasn't just some great leader of the past or some religious fanatic, some figure from history that has no bearing on your life, but rather he is much, much more. And we need to get Jesus right because, like I said, it determines our eternal destiny. So I've got, there's three observations in this passage. We're going to walk through three simple points. I will tell you out of the gate, the first one's long, okay? So don't lose heart in the middle of this, but stick with me. And we'll, we'll move as quick as we can. Point number one, uh, in getting Jesus right, you must understand his nature. You must understand his nature. And we'll look at verses one through five to see this. Now to get Jesus right, you must understand who he is. And in these few verses, we have a very clear picture revealed by John. Now, again, we don't have time to go in deep of this uh, because there's a ton here. But let me just point out a few things. The first is that he uses the word. Look there in, in verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the word. You've seen that. You understand that. Maybe you don't understand that. The concept of the word. Why is it the word? Why does John call him the word? Why is it a definite article, the word? Why is the word 
W capital, the letter W capitalized. What is he referring to here? And I can't go deep into this, but let me just say it this way to help you. He, he is saying this word is the revelation of God. That's basically what this is meaning. He is, uh, to say it a different way, the self-expression of God. You get that? He is the self-expression of God in creation, revelation, salvation, and he is the personification of God. I know that's deep. I know it's heavy, and I'm not going to say anything more on that except to say that's the definition of word to the best of our understanding of it, the self-revelation of God. Now, let me walk through these verses, and we'll put, pull out some of the main character qualities. Now, on my sheet of paper, I have the big point, point number one, laid out, and then I've got a bunch of bullet points below it in case you're taking notes and you're like, how do I break this down in the best possible way? So the first one is this, the first character quality of who the word is, who Jesus is, getting Jesus right, the first is that he is eternal. You could say Jesus is eternal. And back in that first phrase in verse one, it says, in the beginning was the word. Now, you might recognize those first few words because in Genesis 1.1 it says, in the beginning, what? Thank you. Somebody is paying attention. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John starts his gospel the same way that Genesis 1 starts, right? John is saying in the same way that in the beginning there was nothing and then God made everything, so in the beginning there was Jesus. In the beginning it was the Word. Before creation, before space, listen to this, if this is even possible, before time, Jesus was there. How can you have something before time? Because by definition, that's, you're saying it's before time, there was eternity, but that's a reference to time. So eternity is outside of time. I don't understand that. But for our vernacular, before time, Jesus was there. Um, the word existed. In Revelation 1.17, Jesus said this, I am the first and I am the last. I am before all things and I will be here after all things. John 8.58, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. Or even the... Um, John, as he writes, John the Baptist in verse 16, or verse 15 says, he existed before me, even though John is older than him. So there's a, there's a picture of Christ as eternal. Um, how about Colossians 1.17? He, he is before all things. Or listen to Hebrews 7.3. 7, it says, without father, without mother, without genealogy. And this is referring to um, Melchizedek, but it's actually referring to Christ. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Isaiah 9, 6, it says, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Listen to this. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, fill in the blank. Anybody know? The Everlasting Father. Get around that one. Right? It's referring to the child who is the everlasting father and the prince of peace. And so back to John 1, it says there, in the beginning was the word. Before creation, Jesus was. That is to say Jesus is eternal. He is the uncreated one. Okay, secondly, he is separate from God. Jesus is separate from God. Now don't pick up stones to stone me or call blasphemy yet. Hold on a second and look at the phrase here. John says that in the second phrase of verse 1. And the word was with God. In a sense, he is separate from God. There's a relationship between the word and between God. A personal, intimate relationship. John 17, 5. How many of these verses should I have you look at? Why don't you guys flip over there? Look at John 17, verse 5. 
We'll go to as many passages together as we can, but I'm going to call a bunch out. John 17, 5, Jesus is in the high priestly prayer, and he's praying to the Father, and he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Look at this. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. So there's the eternal nature, but also the relationship and the glory that they shared. Look down at verse 24, 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. Now check this phrase. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. I think that's cool. There is a love relationship between father and son before creation. Okay, but now you've got to go back to Proverbs 8.30. I want you guys to see this uh, in your own Bibles. And we're going to come back to this verse in a little bit, I think. But uh, this, this passage is super cool. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 30. There are still some paper Bibles out there, but not very many. So that's okay. Make a lot of noise if you've got paper. Make me feel better. Thank you. Proverbs 8, 30. Then I was beside him. Speaking of the son talking about the father. I was beside him as a master workman. Check this out. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. And if you look at the context, it's talking about creation. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him. They were in a love relationship. He is separate from God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. There is a relationship between father and son. One commentator said that the word is God's eternal fellow. I'm not really sure what that means, but I like it. God's eternal fellow, right? In our vernacular, we could say that the Son and the Father are different. They are separate persons. This is why Jesus prayed to the Father throughout his ministry. It's why he appealed to the Father in the garden that this cup would pass. It's why on the cross he cried out to the Father, Why have you forsaken me? In that moment of personal um, uh, intimacy they've had since before creation, all of a sudden it's severed because God has turned his back for the first time. There's an intimate and personal relationship between father and son. And so we see he's eternal. We see he is separate from God. And then the third one here, we see that he is God. Jesus is God. That's the the third phrase in verse one where it says, and the word was God. This is crazy. I don't even know how to teach this. Okay, seriously, because it's beyond what we can understand. The word is separate, but now that we see he's also God. I, I can't understand it. It's a theological truth about the infinite God that our finite minds can only slightly understand. And if you're sitting here going, yeah, not that big of a deal, you really haven't thought about it deeply enough. Okay? Because it's beyond what we can understand. That God is one is taught clearly in the scriptures. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, the great statement of Israel, behold, or not behold, he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is... One And yet here we're saying the word and God, two separate, are equal, are together, are the same. Right? He is one and yet the scripture teaches, Ryan read Ephesians 1, he's also three. We call this the Trinity. And we can't, again, go into this, but don't try to compare the Trinity to water. <laughs> Let me just explain the Trinity to you. Because it's like water. You've got the solid form, you've got the liquid form, and you've got the gas form. Three different forms of the same deal. No, it breaks down. Don't talk about him like he's an egg. Well, you see, God is the Trinity and there's three different parts to the egg, the white, the yolk, and the shell. 
And it all breaks down. You can't get there. It's like grapes all put together, but all part of one. No, you're not going to get there, okay? All of those fall so woefully short, they're not even worth using as illustrations. The Bible teaches that God is three and God is one. And how we wrap our minds around that, I can't do it. All I can tell you is that's what the Bible teaches. And we do our best to understand it. We submit to what we don't know because we are finite. Our brains go up to about, you know, like 10 or 11 RPM, like they're just cranking around. And we need something with a lot more horsepower to get this done. Now notice back in verse one, look back at your Bibles. It doesn't say in the beginning was a word. And a word was with God and a word was God. Notice that there is a definite article there and the word, you you understand what a definite article is? Okay, it's the word the, okay? In case English isn't your forte, I understand. I'm not trying to mock them. But you put the in front of it, and it is specific. It's objective. It is not that Jesus was a word, and there was a God. Some different religions, false religions, will um, get past this verse by removing the definite article and putting the word a in there instead. In the beginning was a word, and a word was with God, and a word was God. Not the, referring to Christ. Um, and, and it is the word, the word. Jesus is not a word as the JWs teach. He is not the physical son of God and the brother of Satan as the Mormons teach. This passage is clear. He is God, very God. He is divine. He is the same essence and nature as the father. Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the revelation of God, the stamp of God. That's what that word means. If you were to take the ring and stamp it into wax and go like this, he is the exact representation of what God is. The same. Philippians 2.6 says that he existed in the form of God. Colossians 4, or 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says he, he is the image of God. Colossians 2.9 says that in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And we can go on. To deny The deity of Jesus Christ is to castrate the scriptures. It is to take all of the power away and alter the simple teaching of verses like John 1.1, where it says the word is God, or there the word was God. You get this wrong, you get everything wrong. This is so key and so critical to what the Christian faith is that to miss this means altering your opportunity for salvation. To believe in a different interpretation in whether or not people still speak in tongues today. We can disagree on that. To to maybe think, well, I'm not sure if there's a millennial kingdom or how that's all going to work. And we might disagree on that interpretation. There's a lot of things in Christendom that can be debated based on interpretation. This is not one of those things. This, if you believe something other than the full deity of Jesus Christ, then you have missed everything. And back to our point, you have not gotten Jesus right. To get him right is what matters most. And what this teaches, which every other religion will push down, is that Jesus Christ is God. You miss this, you strip the power of everything else that happens, and we don't have time to get into depth on that, but but this is so key. Jesus, it says right here, he is God, right? He is eternal, he is separate from God, but he is God. Number four, he is creator. He is creator. Look at verse three. It says, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, John gives us both a positive and a negative statement, right? You see that there? He made it all, the first phrase. 
all things came into being through him. That's positive. The negative side of it, just in case you missed that, is apart from him, nothing was made. All right? Simple way of saying he made everything. He is the agent of creation. He made everything from the smallest molecule to the largest star. He is the designer, the architect, and he is the one who made it all. Colossians 1.17, you might know this verse, says, For by him, speaking of Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. And it says all things have been created through him and for him. Hebrews 1 verse 2 says that um, through whom also, speaking of the Father, he says he appointed Christ heir of all things through whom also he made the world. Simple point, Jesus is creator. I know this is very redundant, but this is super important. Now, are you guys still in Proverbs by any chance? Ah, go back to Proverbs 8. I want to show you the context of that verse. Proverbs 8 verse 27. will establish Jesus as the creator. In 27, it says, when he established the heavens, I was there. Okay, so we got, we got two people, so to speak, here. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundaries so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, here's our verse, then I was beside him, as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Tell me that's not so cool. This is, a, this is a statement that Christ was there with the Father creating. Or if you want to go back to Genesis 1, go there, because that's an easy one to find. Genesis 1 and verse 26. Maybe you've never noticed this before, but the Trinity is active in creation. In verses 2 and 3, you see that the Spirit of God is over the surface of the deep. You have God speaking, but in 126, it says, then, then God said, let, what's that next word? Us. That's a personal pronoun, but it's plural. It's another English lesson for you. Let us, not let me make man, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Do you see this? There, there is the work of the Trinity in creation. It is not just God the Father. He has used the Son as the agent for creation. And so Jesus, according to John 1, existed outside of time. And he is also the creator of all things. And I was just thinking about this. There was a, uh, I, I may have told you this story before, but Tracy and I were driving with our family on the interchange from the 15 to the 91, but we were in the fast track. And we came down the hill, and on the freeway, the traffic was just dead stopped. And, uh, and we came down doing 75 miles an hour, and all of a sudden, we came to the accident. And it had just happened. And when we found out, because we pulled over, she's a nurse, and therefore, I forced her to be a first responder. Just keep driving, please. I don't want to go out there. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, but there was a 75-year-old man who had dementia and had, at 70 miles an hour, had opened the door in the passenger seat and just gotten out of his car and had hit the ground and rolled. And we came upon him maybe, maybe a minute or two after it happened. And so there's people trying to move him. You know, everybody freaks out, tries to do stuff, and nobody knows it. So they're trying to drag him and do up. And so Tracy jumps in and goes, stop, leave him where he is. The guy, the, his forehead, there was a huge circle that was down to the skull that had been just rubbed away on the ground. He had a compound fracture, which means both bones, and it was an open fracture, which means it was out of the skin on his forearm. And he kept trying to put his hand down. It was, it was just like, you know that in Harry Potter when they take the bones away? It looked just, I'm not kidding, it looked just like that. 
And this guy was in really bad shape, really bad shape. And we're standing there, and you're like, you want to do something to help him, right? And, and we did, to the best of our ability, but we can't stop the bleeding. We can't heal the internal issues. There's an issue. There's problems there, but if Jesus was there, who is creator, he would look down and just mend the broken arm and heal the, 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 the head injury and take away the internal bleeding. You know why? Because he has authority over his creation. This is the reason why, as creator, he walked into this earth and he could multiply bread. And he could take fish that didn't exist and bring them into existence for lunch. This is why he could turn water into wine and heal lepers and bring back the dead and say to a storm, hush, be still. And the men in the boat were more terrified of him than they were of drowning in the storm because they recognized that all of a sudden they were in the boat with God in that moment. And they were terrified of it. Why? Because the creator was there. Jesus can do that. You know why? Because he made all things. And he exhibited that over and over again in his life. So we see Jesus as creator. Fourth, we see that he, or is this fifth? We see that he is the source of life. He's not just eternal. He's not just separate from God. He's not just God. He's not just the creator, but he is also, number five, the source of life. Verse four, it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is the source of life. He is the giver of life. He has all life in himself, and he gives it to whom he pleases. We saw it in Genesis 1 already that he breathes life into the nostrils of man and gives them living, uh, the ability to live. In um, John chapter 11, he stands at the tomb of Lazarus' friend. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes back from the dead. Life enters back into him, right? And even three days after his own death, he would take his own life back by his own power from the dead and the resurrection. He is the man who has life. Now, a battery, you plug something into it and eventually it runs down. You go on a houseboat like we did this last weekend, and there's a thing called a generator, which basically you put gas into it, and it runs, and it produces electricity, so you can have refrigeration, you can have lights, and all sorts of things, and everything's great because it's nice and cool inside, and the lights are on. But guess what happens when you run out of gas? The generator stops, and you're in the dark trying to figure out why is it so hot outside, and your toilets don't flush, and it's just a disaster, right? The power's gone but not with Jesus. He is the source of life. He doesn't run down like a battery. He doesn't run out of fuel like a generator. He is the very source of, of, uh, of, of life and he gives life, not just life that we would have on this earth for 70 or 80 years, but the eternal life that goes on forever and ever, the unbreakable life, the unending life, the undying life that he has, he's chosen to give to others like us. And look at verse four. He says that this life is the light of men. I'm sorry, but it's like the AllSpark, if you get that reference. It is the life, only guys, it is the life given to men and women at creation. The self-existing life of the word was dispensed at creation and be, because and becomes, excuse me, the light of the human race. He's the, he's the light, now, or he is life. Now, number six, and finally in this point, he is unstoppable. He is unstoppable. Verse five. It says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. And I bet you've read this verse and try to figure out what in the world does that mean? Darkness didn't comprehend it? Well, do you have a different, um, your, what does your translation have for that word? Overcome. Overcome? Overpower. Overpower? Yeah, those are good words. Uh, the darkness could not understand. The darkness could not grasp. The darkness could not receive or lay hold of. 
But I do like that word overpower the best. I think that's the best way of defining this. Jesus came as the light, as the life into a dark place and he dispelled darkness. You know that darkness and light are not opposites like cold and heat are, I think. Darkness and light are not opposites. You put light into darkness and what happens? The darkness is gone. Why? Light dispels darkness or light is the absence of, Darkness is the absence of light. However you want to say that, think about it later. But darkness loses and light always wins. There's never been a time where you've turned your flashlight on and the darkness has just smothered it back down, right? Light always cuts through and pierces the darkness. And the illustration is very simple. The light wins. Jesus came to a dark place facing the kingdom of darkness and the darkness could not stand. Genesis 1 said that Satan would come and he would bruise Jesus' heel, but Jesus would come and he would crush his head, right? In Matthew 4, Jesus, after 40 days, weak as a human being, out in the desert, being tempted by Satan, stands against him. All throughout his ministry, you see over and over again the demonic world coming. Why don't we see the demonic world like that today? It's like all over the Gospels, these demon-possessed people are coming, and they're coming in a way to assault Christ. But they get into his presence, and guess what happens? They literally melt in front of him in fear and cower before him saying, please don't judge us now. He gets to the cross at the very pinnacle of darkness as he's mocked and beaten and nailed to a tree. They take his life only to find out that he is unbeatable and that in his death there is victory. He has the final word. He says it is finished. He wins. It is the ultimate victory. And he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father as the obedient Son lifted to glory. And he will come back to make all things right. The light dispels darkness. He is the giver of life. He's not going anywhere. And so you got to get Jesus right. This is John's point. You need to understand who he is. If you're going to read about turning water to wine, oh, that's a neat parlor trick. Right? If you're going to hear about him casting, cleansing the temple, if you're going to hear about him talking to a woman at the well, well, that's interesting. You need to understand first and foremost who Jesus is. And what he's telling you is that Jesus Christ is none other than God. This is his nature. He is eternal. He is separate from God. He is God. He is creator. He's the source of life. He's unstoppable. And we need to get Jesus right. <clears throat> that's the simple reality. Okay, number two. Number two, you must accept his message. Not only do you need to understand his nature, but you must accept his message. It's not enough to know who Jesus is. It has to be more than that. This is not an intellectual ascent. Let me show this to you. I can't get into all these verses because we're already behind schedule. But look down at verse 12. He says there, but as many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. These are the ones who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see it there? He came to end the reign of sin. He came to end the separation that sin caused. Ephesians 1 tells us, excuse me, Ephesians 2 tells us that we are alienated from God because of our sin. That we are sons and daughters of the ruler of this world. That all humanity has fallen in the grip of sin. We've gone astray all the way back to Adam and Eve, each of us having been plunged into sin and its consequences. You know the story. Death comes. We're enemies of God. We are dead in our sin. We are lost. We are blind. We are naked. We have no ability on our own to fix our problems. We are at war with God and we cannot find peace. This is what the Bible says about 
all of humanity. But this verse, verse 12, tells us that the message of Jesus Christ is that to those who would receive him, to those who would take him in, to those that, who would hear the reality of who he is and grasp onto him, receive him, who would hold tightly to him, these would become his very children. Uh, this is crazy. These would be adopted as sons and daughters of the king, grafted into his family. These would not suffer the consequences of sin, the death and eternal destruction, but instead would inherit life. No longer aliens or stranger, those who are wandering around trying to figure out life and death, why I'm here, where I'm going. Rather, you can understand the truth and the purpose that Jesus offers in himself. Look at verse 13. He says, this is not from being born of blood. You don't become a child of God just because you came from the right family. You came through the right racial or ethnic heritage. And because you're an American and you grew up in Marietta or Temecula, through that bloodline of an American into a church family, you're going to know God. Absolutely not. It is not out of blood. It is not by the will of the flesh, he says. There's not some personal desire or human willpower that's going to get you there. It's not the will of man that gets you there. The third phrase there. It's not some man-made system of religion thinking that if I just do enough good stuff that I'm going to make it to heaven. It's not by who you're born to. It's not by some desire that you have. It's not by some work that you do that will get you to heaven. No, you can't do the Hail Marys. You can't do enough, um, you know, nailing your own hands to a cross or crawling up some staircase or enough petitions. You can't do enough good deeds. Look what he says there. They are born of who? Born of God, the end of verse 13. So how does that all happen? Look at the end of verse 12. This is the message of Jesus Christ. It happens to those who believe in his name. His message that you have to understand and get a hold of is that Jesus came to offer life, but not through our works, but through his. Those who recognize that he is the only way to heaven, that through his life, death, resurrection, we can put our lives in his hands and trust him fully for salvation. Again, not your family, not your efforts, his work, his family. And it comes through simple faith. Those who believe comes through trust. It comes from letting go of all that you think you can accomplish on your own. All of those past efforts that really are just stained and sinful efforts. You're carrying guilt from your past. You're carrying the consequences of your sin. You're carrying the fear of what if somebody finds out about that. All of the shame. And you're thinking, I'm going to take this to God and say, here it is, Lord. Let me into heaven. Good luck with that. Jesus is saying here it comes only to those who believe in his name, who put their sin and all of their life at the foot of the cross and say, I can't do it. I need help. Only through his work. That's the point of this book. These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life in his name. Saved by grace, through faith, not by works. Look again at that last phrase in verse 13. You're not born of blood nor the will of man, but what? You're born of God. Salvation is his work. We need to come to him stripped of everything, lay it all down, ask him if we can become one of his children. I Think about that phrase. I don't know what your earthly family's life. Some of you come from really, really tough families. It's families where you're thinking, I'm never getting married. You know why? 
because it's a disaster in my house. And what I, what's been modeled to me is something I don't ever want to be part of. I've watched my mom struggle. My dad took off at this age. Something else happened. It's been disastrous. My family's a war zone. I don't want part of that. But listen carefully. You can be a child of God with a perfect heavenly father who loves you in a perfect way, who cares for you. It, 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 this is unbelievable that we can become his children. He will take away uh, our guilty conscience, our fearful souls, and he will fix our broken hearts, making us his child so that we can turn from our sin and find peace in God and in God alone. That was Jesus' mission, to offer redemption and salvation to all who would call on his name, letting go of their own efforts and say, I believe in what you've done to make them his children. And so we see in these verses John lays out who Jesus is, and he lays out what his mission is and what his message is. And that takes us to point number three. You must grasp his revelation. You must grasp his revelation. Verses 14 to 18. Let's look at verse 14 first. It says, and the word became flesh. That's it. Let me just put this in our vernacular. God became a man. And I know you've heard it at least 500 times. But this reality is everything. And to allow that to just be another one of those things is not acceptable. The word became flesh. This is it. Flip over to Galatians 4 verse 4. Can we do that? I like making you guys move around for some reason tonight. Galatians 4 verse 4. Remember how to find which one it is in the list? Yeah, go eat popcorn or something about Gentiles and Gentiles eat pigs and pork and pork chops. Thank you. Galatians eat pork. Yeah, that's another one. Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. Did he come as the eternal God in the form of the invisible God coming down in his glory? No. He was born of a woman. God in a human body. He was born under the law. It means he came into the same life, the same circumstances as all of us, so that, verse 5, he might redeem those who were under the law. He had to be born under the law so he could redeem those under the law that we might receive, what's that phrase say? The adoption as sons. There it is. You want to be the child of God and have adoption in his family? It comes through Christ who was given at the proper time for redemption. How is this possible? How can you take the infinite and eternal God and pour that being into a finite body? I have no idea. The source of life and the creator of all becomes one of his creation. It's beyond comprehension. Philippians 2.6. Just two books to your right. Did I say that? Sorry, Philippians 2.6 says, although Jesus existed in the form of God, we quoted that earlier, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but here it is verse seven, but he emptied himself and take, took the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. There he is. He emptied himself, somehow poured himself out into this form, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The scripture teaches that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. And let me come back to the main point. If you miss this, if you believe something less than this, 
then you miss who Jesus is. You have to get this right. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And back in John 1.14, it says that he dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father. So what's that saying? He revealed the Father full of glory somehow, this one and only Son of God whose glory was masked behind his skin, but every now and then Jesus would reveal himself. Every now and then you'd see a little bit of the glory of God when all of a sudden he's walking and somebody comes up to him and touches his cloak and they're healed. A little bit of his power, a little bit of his divinity. When, when he's sitting um, on a boat and all of a sudden he goes, hush, be still, and it's flat. There's the revelation of his glory. And how about when he's on the top of a mountain and he literally peels back his flesh and, and shows himself to his disciples. This is the revelation of God in Christ. Right? And so verse 14 says, I love this phrase. He's full of, look down your Bibles, 114. It says he is full of what? Grace and truth. He came revealing the grace of God. That is that no man can be saved by human efforts or the keeping of the law because we're all fallen. Instead, by the unmerited favor of God who in love sent his son to ransom us and to bring us back. He came also, this verse says, in truth, full truth, declaring the full revelation of God, the truth of who God is, the truth of God's standard, the truth of God's judgment, and the truth of his salvation. As the word, he came as the full revelation. Jesus is the full expression of God's grace and the full expression of God's truth. Now look down at verse 17. It says, the law was given through Moses. So Moses came, stood on the mountain, had his Ten Commandments. I saw a show once where Moses came down. And in one arm, he had five commandments and then five more commandments, two tablets. And the other arm, he had one. And he stepped down, he goes... I'd like to give to you, people of Israel, the 15. And one of them fell over and broke. And he goes, the 10 commandments. <laughs> anyway, it's not a true story, but. <laughs> the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Simple point here. Grace triumphs over law. God gave law through Moses. Now, the law was not given. You know the law, right? The Ten Commandments. The law was not given to save people. There's nothing salvific about the law. But rather to show people that the sinner is unable to keep God's perfect standard. The law is clear, and what it does is reveals to you that you are not right with God. That's the purpose of the law. You cannot keep it perfectly. And this law, in divine justice, condemns the sinner to judgment. All the law does is reveals your need for a savior. But Galatians 3.24 says that it is the tutor that leads us where? To Christ. The law leads us to Christ. Grace and truth, verse 17 says, were realized through Jesus Christ. Jesus came in the flesh to offer salvation. The word became flesh. He came. He offered it. He came as the revelation of the Father, verse 18 says, to bring salvation. John 14, verse 6, you know it. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He revealed life so that we could come to the Father through him. He would live the perfect life, the life we failed to live. He would die the death we deserve. He would bear our sin. He would do the work we could never do so that we could be forgiven and rescued and have salvation. That is grace, getting what you don't deserve. And verse 16 says that we have received 
grace upon grace. The, the construction there is like an overflowing grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. When we deserve law and judgment, no, Jesus came and gave grace upon grace upon grace. It's been lavished upon us. Salvation then is in Christ alone. He has been revealed in human form so that you and I can be made right with God. That is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you need to grasp that is my point there. And so, back to the main central thought here. You need to get Jesus right. He is the only way to God. He is the only way to be forgiven. He is the only way to have peace and he alone gives grace. The question I have for you is what will you do with that information? There are people in this room that have bowed before this Christ and have said, I believe and you can have all of me. I put my sin-stained hands and all that I am at the foot of the cross and I trust you alone for salvation. And there are people in this room who still refuse that message and say, I'll figure it out on my own with a fist in God's face. And I'm calling you through the word of God tonight to say you need Christ. You need to be forgiven because you want to be under grace and not under the law. The law will condemn you because you've fallen short of it and it will be the standard that God uses to judge you on that day. Or you can come and find Christ who says, no, I've overcome and perfectly kept the law and I'll wipe away that and your sin and I will shower you with grace only to those who believe and who trust in him. So tonight, we've seen that in order to get Jesus right, you must understand his nature You must accept his message and you must grasp his revelation. I know this is heavy. I know it's a tough way to start. I can see in your eyes, super heavy theological word here. There's a lot in this and I've just packed it in. John comes out swinging and I hope that you'll come back and hear more about the Lord Jesus Christ. I appreciate you guys staying with this, even though this has been a pretty heavy and thick message. Let's pray. We're gonna sing one more song, two more songs, and then we're gonna be done. Father, thank you for a chance to be in your word tonight. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for loving us when we are unlovely and for coming after us when we were your enemies and we were running from you. Thank you for offering your very own son that we might have life and forgiveness. We don't deserve it, and we don't even understand it fully, but we trust wholly in that sacrifice and wholly in Jesus Christ. And we love you and want to respond to you for what you've done. So I pray that you'd awaken our hearts after sitting for such a long time and allow us to sing about what you've done in our hearts and in our lives. For those in this room who are not yet Christians and have not submitted to Christ, I ask, Lord, that tonight would be the night that you would draw them to yourself, that you would uh, make tonight be the, the, the night of salvation. Reveal your strong arm to save, to take away sin, and to draw sinners to yourself. Please do that tonight, that we might rejoice in our God who saves. We love you and are so thankful for the salvation you've given to us in Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.